Turn to the book of Acts, if you would. Acts 10 and 11. We're going to be kind of, doesn't sound good, but we're going to be all over those chapters a little bit tonight, both of those. This is the, we talked about the conversion of Cornelius Sunday morning. We're going to talk about the conversion of Peter, not to salvation, but the work that God did in his heart to help him to see the wrongness of racism. So I want to start off tonight, to be clear, my big idea, so to speak. Every pastor should have one. It's trying to say uh, what your sermon's about in one sentence. And here's mine. Tonight I want to get this across. Gospel proclamation is tied to racial reconciliation. Let me say it again. Gospel proclamation and scripture is tied to racial reconciliation. They are not the same. And gospel proclamation is primary. Racial reconciliation is secondary in the sense that it's a fruit of the gospel in winning people. So as important as it is, um, gospel proclamation is the great commission that Jesus left us to make disciples of everyone across the nations in this world. And truthfully, as you're going to see tonight, one of the results of that, one of the fruits of sharing the gospel with everyone is to accomplish what God accomplished and wants to do in the churches and around the globe, and that's racial reconciliation. So the goal of God and the goal of the church is not so much to eliminate racism only, although that's a great goal and we strive toward that, but God wants more than that. that. That's also the world's goal, and it's an admirable goal, but in the church, because it's God's goal, we have a little bit more than that. It's not just the elimination of racism, it's the achievement of diversification. That's what we want. That's what God wants. And that's why racism is not primary, uh, primarily a social issue, uh, but it's a gospel issue. And can I just say up front tonight, can I, that doesn't sound like a big deal. Yeah, of course it is. Um, but that is a problem because I would say that those two cannot be separated. They are not identical. One is subordinate to the other, as I've already said tonight. But can I tell you this? In our land, people who are Christians are trying to approach and solve and work through the problem of racism without the gospel. Um, they're trying to say, if we just get along, how to talk. There's all kinds of things that people are doing. But can I tell you, as a Christian, we cannot truly solve the problem, work to it, and achieve God's goals in it unless we keep racism and, and what we're trying to do reconciliation-wise as a part of and attached to the gospel. And I would say that the greatest segregation problem may not be uh, white people and black people, but racism from the gospel. We may, segregating racism and not keeping it moored to and tied to the gospel is a, is a huge problem. So let me tell you what that looks like in our passage. If you took the time tonight, as I've done, and I pray that you would, if you read the entire chapter of Acts chapter 10, you would see that there are two visions given in that chapter. The first one starts with the vision that God gives uh, from heaven to Cornelius. And we went through that already a little bit last Sunday morning, but that's not the only one. And so let me park there that there's a second vision, the very next paragraph in Acts 10, and that's the vision that God gives to Peter. Now, listen, if 
and I say that, you say, well, that's obvious. You just read the text, you can see that. But why is it like that? Because here's what I was thinking. If God was only interested in getting Cornelius saved because the only thing about him that mattered was that he was lost, then there would be no reason for God to have to give Peter a vision at all. We just needed one vision in the chapter. God could have told, hey, Cornelius, you are lost. The guy that has the salvation message you need to hear is Peter, so I'm going to send you to him. And you're going to go over there, he's going to give you the gospel, you're going to be saved, and it's a done deal. But that's not how the story goes. That's, that's barely half of the story. What you find, as I said before, is God gives Cornelius a vision that he needs to go talk to Peter, but then he has a vision that he gives to Peter telling him that he needs to talk with Cornelius. And there's more than just talk. It's how he should view Cornelius and how he should relate to Cornelius. And so here's why both of those visions are foundational to understanding the message of the gospel and what God's trying to accomplish in Acts 10 and 11. And here it is, that God is not just concerned and the gospel is not just about how many people get saved. So we don't, we don't give the gospel just to say, hey, as many people as possible. That's true. We want as many people possible to get saved. Second Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So God would love and desire in his heart that every person on the planet would get saved. It's not going to happen, but that's God's desire. That's what he would want to happen. In the text, though, because there is a vision that's given to Peter about Cornelius and not calling him unclean and not separating from him and not willing to eat with him and have meals or associate with him, there's another purpose. God is not only concerned about how many, get people, how many people get saved, he is concerned about what kinds of people get saved. God is concerned about both. The gospel is concerned about both. And the application is obvious, and so should we. And, and I want to tell you tonight, we're going to get to it in just a minute, point number one, when you get to see what point number one they are, is that God is intentional, purposeful, and strategic about it. And can I say to you, see, as individuals in your family, and as a church, I believe the Bible is very clear. If you look at the example of God and Jesus, that you look at, their, at what it says about that in the scriptures about them, is that God is very strategic about it. So I would say this to you. One of God's purposes in salvation is saving people from their sin. That's vertical. But he's also, another purpose of God in salvation is to bring the nations back together again, again into one community. That's horizontal. So the primary purpose is vertical, and the secondary purpose that's a result of it is horizontal. And God cares about them both. In fact, one comes from the other. Let me show you that in a little bit of an exegetical fashion. Turn to Acts 10, the very last paragraph, which was after the one we tackled on Sunday morning. And let me show you a few things in it that you may not have seen and why it's important to what we're talking about tonight. Verse 44 reads of Acts 10, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. All who heard the word. And of the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, Jewish people, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So you got Jewish people there with Peter, and they're surprised that the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out on them. Now this is the same verb, poured out, 
in this passage, if you go back to Acts chapter 2 in verse 4, and then later on a couple times, I think in verses 18 and 30 as well, it's a quotation of the Joel 2 prophecy about in the, in the times God would say he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And not meeting just all Jewish people, but Jewish and Gentile people alike. And so uh, they're quoting that passage there. But in the text, here's what it says. Is that God is pouring out on the Gentiles. Now, now watch what happens. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. The word extoli means megaluno is the Greek word, a big, huge brightness. In other words, they were making God really great by doing this. What was it? Real quick theology lesson. Ready? Watch. Stick with me. Um, Speaking in tongues happens numerous times as a result of showing that people have the Spirit of God numerous places throughout the book of Acts. Only one time, only one time, do people get the Holy Spirit, and speak in tongues immediately when they are saved. And that's this one. Now, there are other times when people get saved and in their baptism, and after their baptism, the Holy Spirit comes on them and they speak in tongues. That happens a couple times. Later on, people get saved and they've been baptized, and then some apostles come from Jerusalem and they lay hands on them and they get the tongues even later than that. So there are all kinds of times when people get tongues. But the only time in Acts where people are saved and at the moment they get saved, they actually filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues simultaneously is this passage. And the reason is, is because this is the primary passage about Gentiles getting saved and showing their equality. And God wanted to make sure that we know this, listen, that God is concerned about spreading the message to all the peoples of the world in language they can understand. Now, it's more than that though. Stay with me. Do you know that this, these are the words that surround Acts 2 or also in Acts 10. And the speaking in tongues by Gentiles and other people are the same in Acts 2 as in Acts 10. And some commentators have even put these two chapters together and said Acts 2 is big Pentecost and Acts 10 is little Pentecost. And what was the primary purpose of Pentecost? Why were all the people from all over the world speaking in tongues? Not because it was something of worship. Tongues primarily in those texts are hearing the gospel in a language that you can understand. Why was that necessary? Because God, way back in Genesis 11, had separated the nations from one another and they no longer could speak their own language, the same languages anymore. So everybody divided up based on your language background and your group. You know what Pentecost does, the big one and the little one? It's, it shows that the gospel's intent, one of the gospel intents when people get the Spirit and speak in tongues, it is God is bringing the nations back together again. See, that's the purpose of it. That was the purpose of it in Acts 2 and in Acts 10. So what is God trying to say? He's trying to say that this is my new church. This is my new community of people. They're not just Jews anymore. It is all of people, all the nations together, and they are getting the message that they can understand the gospel in their own language, and they're all being brought together, so Jew and Gentile together. And then you'll find this pattern throughout the book of Acts, and let me tell you why, because it all goes together. You're going to find out almost every time an individual is saved, or even groups of people at times, they are saved, they get the Holy Spirit, and then they are baptized. And we think in Baptist churches, oh, that's just, that's what we do. 
We get saved, and that's a private thing, and then baptism is a public thing, and there's some level of truth to that, but that's not the primary significance. The reason that baptism was public so that you would openly declare that you were a disciple of Jesus Christ, but it was also the main demonstration that you were accepted into the community of believers. Now, for Jewish people who are around Jewish people, that was no big deal. But when you talk, start talking the inclusion in the community of God on an equal footing, all of these Gentile people, I mean, imagine just for a second, you're the Ethiopian eunuch, and you're going down the road, and Philip runs up to your chariot and gives you the gospel of Isaiah 53, and you understand through his guiding you and interpreting the scripture for you that that person, that suffering servant, was Jesus the Messiah, and he died for your sins. And then while you're reading the Isaiah scroll, which is in Isaiah 53, and you read three chapters later in Isaiah 56 that the eunuch is now considered to have a better position than God's people in the kingdom you're beginning to say, oh, here's what it means to be included. That the eunuch, you read, read the, the text for yourself in Deuteronomy 23.1, in Levitical law, if you were a eunuch, you could not enter the temple for any reason ever. Ever. You're excluded. You could never, you, you wouldn't just be one of God's people on a lower level as a proselyte. You could never be included, ever, because of what you'd done to yourself sexually. Right? You couldn't. And this eunuch hears the gospel, and he's included. And now you know why. Listen to this. And they're going along after he says, if you believe in Jesus, what hinders me or prevents me from being baptized? There's water here. And you know what Philip says? Listen to this. Nothing. And he's not just saying, hey, there's water. Let's do it. Isn't that perfect timing? That's not the point. The point is, the Ethiopian eunuch, who's a, who's a black guy, from a foreign country who's a Gentile who had, done th you know, had sexual things done to himself so he could work with the palace and never could be accepted to God. Now through Jesus Christ, he's accepted. Baptism means I am now accepted as part of the community. Can, so, so you put that together in these stories, and, and here's what you find, that God is accepting into his community people on an equal footing, no matter who they are, what the color of their skin, what their language is, what their background is, what their past was, no matter what happened to them, the sins they committed in the past. Here's what God says. Here's what the gospel does. The gospel brings it all back together under the grace that is in Christ Jesus. See, that's the power of what we're talking about tonight. So when, when I say God is intentional, and God is purposeful. Um, that doesn't even go far enough. God is strategic because this is his plan from the very beginning. And now it's being fulfilled at its climax in Jesus, his disciples, and the church, of which now you and I, by the grace of God, are a part of. So God's doing that with people. But can I tell you how in-depth and serious that this whole thing goes with God? Look over, if you would, just a couple pages to Acts 13. It's not enough that God wants in the pews, this is modern day talk, he wants in the pews there to be all kinds of people from all the nations in the pews. He, he wants that, he desires that, that's his strategic plan, his intentional purposes, but he wants more than that. He wants churches to be run and their leadership to reflect it. Acts 13 now there were in the church at Antioch, Jerusalem was the headquarters, but once they started the expansion of the Great Commission, there's another church in Antioch, which is up at the top of Syria. If you go all the way up the coast from Jerusalem until it starts turning the bend to go into Europe and all those places, there's a little bend right there. Antioch was right there. 
Antioch is the new Jerusalem because now it's, a, it's, it's not a Jewish town. It's a Gentile mixed with all kinds of other people town. And that's fitting if you're going to reach the nations, right? And it says at that church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and they're going to name them, okay? Now, you know the first two because they're all in the flannel graph stories and the Bible stories. You know the next two. You're not going to know the next three, okay? And I'm going to tell you, they, these three guys, after Barnabas and Saul are mentioned, are guys that you may not have ever heard of. And, and can I tell you this? It's the only time they're ever mentioned in all of Scripture. You'll never hear their names again in all the Bible. Never. Here's who they are. Barnabas. Barnabas was... Um, he was from, um, what's the, I lost the word, the, the place he was from, not Cyrene, what was the other one? Cyprus, thank you, I got Cy, I couldn't get on my mind. Cyprus, so he is um, from the island, off, it's off the Mediterranean, he's, so him and Saul, Saul was from Tarsus, they are Jewish, but they're Hellenistic Jews, and that means that they didn't live primarily or raised in Israel or Jerusalem, they were raised in a country outside. Hellenistic means that their main language was not Hebrew or Aramaic, it was Greek. So these guys were fitted to the purposes of reaching all the nations because they just didn't know Jewish languages, they knew Gentile languages. So they were ready to go from birth, really. So you got two guys, they're Jewish and they're Hellenistic Jews. Watch you have next. And then you have Simeon, who was called Niger, and that's a word that means black. And so here you got two kind of Middle Eastern guys a little bit, or, or I should say, you got a Middle Eastern guy, a Mediterranean guy, and then you have Niger, who is black, Simeon, and he is African. And then you have Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is a country, if you go west across Egypt, all the way across to a little bubble up there, that was Cyrene. It's right on the water, a really awesome place looking-wise anyways. And that was, they would call today, we call sub-Saharan Africa. So now you have a guy from out in, in Europe almost a little bit, Mediterranean, you got a Middle Eastern guy, you got two African guys, and then you have Menaean, who was in Herod's palace, who is what I would say Jewish aristocracy. So you have another Jew, but not a Hellenistic Jew, but, a Jew, but he's not in an orthodox situation whatsoever. So you got five guys who were picked out as some of the main leaders of the church, and you don't hear the other three names. And my thought was, to, and I asked, why? Why do we hear guys, why take the time to mention, other than Saul and Barnabas, who are mentioned Boodle many more times, why the other three guys? Is it just historical fact? No, you know why? Because here's what I think in the context of all these chapters. God cares about diversity in the church, including the leadership. <laughs> he does. He wants you to know that the church of Antioch was put in that position and had the headquarters there and because they were reaching people and the Gentiles and going out for them and doing that and God pr had planned it strategically and put just the right guys, the right kind of guys. They're guys with different races, the different language, the different cultures, the different backgrounds. Why? Because they were perfect people to put in their spots to do the work that God had called them to do. Last little tidbit before we get to the ones. Acts 11 and verse 26. This is probably a verse you know, but you probably didn't know where to find it. And, and it's famous, and it says at the end of eleven twenty-six, and in Antioch, same place where the diverse leadership church was, the disciples were first called Christians. Now here's the question. Why? 
some people, and, and it has some truth to it, it it's, they were called Christians. So it wasn't what they called themselves. It's what they came to be known because other called them, others called them that. And it could have been because it was derogatory. But I don't think so. Christian means little Christ. And here's what's true about them. They are disciples. They're following Jesus. And what, what is found to be true? Because in Antioch, here's what they were known for. They were known for their Christian identity over their cultural identity. That's why they're called Christians. Because the Christians were, some of them were rich and poor. They were male and female. Some of them were black. Some of them were Mediterranean. Some of them were for Asia. Some of them were for Africa. Some of them were for, some were Jews. Some were Gentile. And when you got a look, the people at Antioch took a look at the church that had formed in their town. Here's what they found. You know what, you know what is marking them? You know what the main thing about them? It's not all the things that they differenti- differentiates them. It's not their color, their race, their background. You know what it is? It's the fact that they follow Jesus. That's the number one identity. Can I tell you this? That's what our world needs the church to be. Be the church. You know what that means? We need to practice that. You know against the fight against racism as far as how the church does it? You know what it is? It's being the community God called us to be. That our first identity is not being white. That's not who we are first. It is second It's not who we are as black or Indian or Hispanic or any other. It's not our first identity. Our first identity is this. We are Christians. We're Christians. And and what made the impact on the culture was that a multi-ethnic, multicultural church in Antioch, as different as they were, were known for the thing that mattered the most, is that they were unified in Jesus and everything else was underneath it. That's what we have. Because can I tell you this? That would make us as the church stand out and be different from all the people in our culture right now. Because right now, um, we have identity politics and a lot of other things taking place. And can I tell you, right now, it's that who I am and Jesus isn't in it. And and I hate to say it, but that's even true of some Christians. That their primary identity is not that they are Christians, it's that they are white or or, or whatever it is. But what makes us be the church and how we can have impact evangelistically in a culture that's been on this, this type of racism is because we are first Christians. It's the weightier thing in our life. And so with all that in mind, let me ask you a question and then we're going to answer it and that's all we have time for. In Acts chapter 11 and <coughs> verse 17 Let me tell you what it is and why he says it, and then we're going to answer it. Peter's going to ask a question. He, Acts 11, the first 17, 19 verses, is a repeat and a summary story that Peter gives to Jewish people from Jerusalem about what happened in chapter 10. So he's going to give you a recount. He's going to tell you all the details, the highlights of everything that happened in his vision from God and in the vision of Cornelius and how it all worked out, Okay. And so at the conclusion, when he rehearses to all these Jewish guys that come from Jerusalem, and he rehearses a story about what God did to put it all together to save Cornelius and to tell him that Cornelius is no different than he is and convince Peter that, here's what Peter says at the end. This is the question. And it says in 11.17, If then, Peter says, God gave the same gift, meaning salvation, the Holy Spirit, to them as he gave to us. In other words, he gave the Gentiles equally to us as Jewish people. When we believed in the Lord Jesus, here's the question, 
Who was I that I could stand in God's way? That is an awesome question. Here's what Peter says. Hey, it wasn't what I thought. This is what I've been doing for 1,400 years. I had not eaten unclean food, and all of a sudden, three she- this sheet comes down from heaven, and it has all this unclean food on it, and Jesus tells me, get up, rise, and eat it. And he goes, no, 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 not so, Lord. I mean, Peter is so ingrained in him that even when Jesus, in a special revelation vision, gives him this stuff, he tries to say no. I mean, that's not uncommon with Peter, is it? I mean, and so he has to get the vision, and he says it in, in the real life version and, and the recollection, ver- I mean, the, the recollection version that he gives to everybody else. He says, and God showed me this vision three times. Now, that's Peter's number because he denied three times. Jesus had to question him if he loved him three times, and he had to get the vision about what was clean three times. I mean, that's Peter. Isn't that us? I mean, here's what had to happen. He had to realize and I say this very purposely, Peter came to the realization to stand in the way of the gospel is to stand in the way of reconciliation, racial reconciliation. And, and, and here's what Peter said, who am I? If God's going to save people and at the same time as a result bring the nations back together in racial reconciliation, if that's his plan, who am I to stand in the way? And the word stand in the way it's the word that's used four or five times in the book of Acts, and it's translated to prevent. Remember when I told you about the Ethiopian eunuch? Who can prevent me from being baptized? There's water. Who would prevent me? And the answer is, well, no one would prevent you. It means to hinder, hold back, forbid, don't let someone carry out their plan. That's how it's used in the book of Acts. And Peter says this, if God's plan is to reach Jews and Gentiles and they're on equal footing, they each get salvation, the Holy Spirit, and then by that God brings the nations back together, who am I to stand in God's way? And we have to ask ourselves individually tonight, and I would, I am as the pastor asking that of our church, are we living lives that stand in God's way of what he's trying to accomplish through the gospel and racial reconciliation? Are we standing in the way by the views that we take, by the way that we treat people, the way we talk to people on the internet, and the things that we go back and forth with, the way we disagree with people, or the way we, we don't talk to people about things, or ignore people, or whatever the things might be? Are we standing in the way? God, Peter would say this, I, I don't want to do that. This is what God is doing in the world And now I recognize it. I mean, it took a little while to get through, but I'm recognizing it. And so let me give my point. God is strategically pursuing racial reconciliation. We don't have time, but I'm going to go like a motor. Ready? I I tried to memorize this so you wouldn't have to. I'm going to give you details. I want to say to you strategically. I want to show you just how much God cares about what I'm talking about tonight so that you can. Philip goes to Samaria in chapter 8. Let me tell you how important God thinks it is to get the gospel to everyone and so that they can revolt, result in the forgiveness of their sins and racial reconciliation as a result. So he goes to Samaria, and he goes there to a village. And if you know anything about Samaritans, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. I mean, hated each other. So here's this one guy, Philip, who's an Hellenistic Jew, who goes to Samaria, and you think that that guy's not going to accomplish anything. Even Jesus, when he passed by the village on the way to Jerusalem for the last time, what do the disciples want to do? James and John want to call down thunder and lightning from heaven and strike them and burn them all down. And uh, they didn't want Jesus to stay there. So there was even rejection of him. So Philip goes there, 
And you think these Samaritans, they're going to hate him. They're not going to listen to anything he says. But you see the opposite. God works it out that he goes to these Samaritan villages and it says that he did miraculous things there. He preached the gospel to them. People got saved. And he says, here's what this says. And that city had great joy. I mean, here we got joy, gospel joy, being brought to a Samaritan city by a gospel Jewish preacher. Only God can do that. But that's just the beginning of what God does. Then God is, immediately God calls Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. Now watch, you, I don't have time to read it, and we're going to do another one on this later. But God says, Philip, I want you to go, and I want you to get to this guy, the Ethiopian eunuch. Now he's from Ethiopia, that's modern-day Nubia. The guy is black. He's been in, in Kandese, that's how you really would say it. Kandese, he's, he's a treasury, he's high art. He, he's like the prime minister of the country. He's very wealthy. It's, it's obvious he's wealthy because no one has their own private scroll. They were such an expense and in high demand that only synagogues and temples and places that had the money to do all that together. This guy's got his own private scroll, which is a thing about this big, and this, it's, it's huge and very expensive. It'd be like buying a car today on your own, and, and you're carrying this car around to read. I mean, no, no one could have done that, not very many, but this guy's rich, he's wealthy, he's influential, he's important. He's from a country way, it's really way away, probably one of the most far away places. But the guy's a eunuch, and he knows he's not accepted in his own religion, at his own place, because of what he's done to himself. And so he comes there, God says in his word, you can't go in the temple, but he went to Jerusalem to worship. So the guy's an outsider to the max. And he comes, and here's what God says, I want you to go, and he says, go down the road, and in the southern road, and I want you to go down there, and you're going to find, so God tells them the address. Here's the road, the GPS, the God positioning system. You go down there, and you turn here, and when it bends this way, literally, when it bends this way, you go there, and I want you to come up in the guy's chariot, and says he had to run. Now, I don't know if that means the chariot's going, and Philip's running to get his attention. It seems that way. So he's running along. Hey, hey, you know, some Jewish guy stops the Ethiopian eunuch guy, and he happens to be a scroll, and Philip asks him, what are you reading? And he happens to be, just happens to be in Isaiah 53, <laughs> the most evangelistic passage in the entire Old Testament, but that's just happenstance, right? So, and, and then, get this, don't miss it, because it sounds like it's just a fact, and it says they stopped the chariot, and the Ethiopian eunuch guy asked, hey, Philip, can you come up here and sit with me in the chariot? Now listen, that guy's unclean. He is not Jewish. He is African. He is a eunuch. He can't get in the temple. And you're not supposed to be around him, touch him, be near him. And Philip doesn't even think, he, of course. He goes up and sits next to him. Why? Because he's blown off all the racism stuff. And he opens the Isaiah scroll and he guides him and introduces him to the suffering servant who is Jesus. And the guy believes and then they accept him right away into the community of God as a believer when he gets baptized. Now, you don't think God said, here's the road, here's the bend, here's the chariot, here's the guy, you run up there. God has orchestrated, he had his own scroll open to this chapter, but God really is not interested and in not in the details. Absolutely not. God is interested in all the details, all of them. Cornelius has a dream. Read it for yourself in Acts chapter 10. It says, that I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it says at the ninth hour of the day, he's praying. And then it says when Peter has his dream, next paragraph, he's praying on the top of his house. Now, you know, Jewish houses were small, square, rectangle-ish. 
They had steps on the side of the house. You know, like you have the side of your house, you might have a chimney going up. They had stairs going up because the, all the roofs were flat. So they weren't pitched like ours. They were all flat, and they stored stuff up there and uh, so forth and so on. So here, you walk up the side steps, you go up there, and they often went up there for prayer. So here you have two guys. They're both praying, one at the ninth hour, one at the sixth hour, right? And so the only times in the Bible that are mentioned, the hours of them are times of prayer. Every Orthodox Jew prayed at the sixth, the ninth, and the twelfth hour. The day started at six, so third hour was nine in the morning, then noon, and then three. The only other time that hours are mentioned in the book of Acts is in Acts 3.1, when James and John went to the temple, and it says they healed the man who was sitting there who was uh, uh, lame. It says they went up at the hour of prayer. So here's what God says. You know how I'm changing the world? You know how I'm giving these visions? It's because I'm doing it at the same time that both of these guys are praying they're praying. And God lets you know that. Why does he care? Why is it the only time in Acts, other than chapter 3, that the times of prayer are mentioned? Because this is how God wants us to think about how detailed he is and about how much he wants you to pray about changing the world. See, when we pray, when people pray, God does amazing things. And so that's when God does it. And then it says in verse 11 of chapter 10, the heavens are open. You know the only other time in the book of Acts that the heaven, that phrase is used, is when Stephen was martyred in Acts 7.56. And then it says that Stephen looked up to God as they were pelting him with stones. And it says, and the heavens were open and he saw Jesus not sitting at God's right hand, but standing because he had stood up for him. And that's the only time. And then in this chapter, chapter 10, verses 17 and 30, it uses the word behold. I looked, I looked up all 15 uses of the word behold, and it's a marker, a major event marker in the book of Acts. So all 15 times, you know what they are? Ananias and Sapphira dying, Pentecost happening, uh, Saul shipwrecked on a storm on the, bo- on the stormy sea with a boat, uh, amazing salvation events. And all, every time behold is used, it's some major event. And what God wants you to know is that when I had Cornelius come and get saved. This is a major event. Of all the things in Acts, this is one of the most crucial ones. And God says, that's how strategic, that's how detailed, and that's how important this whole thing is. Last thing in this one. So you got Peter having a vision on the top of his house. He gets done with the vision. He walks down the side stairs and into the house, and he's not hardly in the house, literally, A few moments. In fact, the little phrase is used at the same moment. So he goes in the house and it says he's perplexed about what all this is going to mean. And he hasn't got in this house literally but a few moments that he has shut the door. He shuts the door and then literally a minute probably later. And all the guys that had come from Cornelius um, from Caesarea to Joppa were standing at his door and he has to be told by the Holy Spirit Go to the door because I sent them and they're standing out there waiting. Now you say, well, that's amazing. No, it's more than that. Do you know how far Joppa is from Caesarea? This is people walking or maybe riding at the most. 33.6 miles. So imagine this. You coordinate people's travel, Peter's vision, him walking down the side of the house, getting inside, and that they're there within moments after he's walked inside, all of that over a 33.6-mile walk or ride so that it can happen exactly 
in that time period that God puts down. Again, do you think God's interested strategically in people getting saved and people from all the nations getting saved? He absolutely is. And when you look at the text, you cannot come away from Acts 10 and Acts 11, you can't come away and not think that that's what God is after. God is after to bring the gospel to all the nations, and one of the main results from people getting saved is racial reconciliation. And can I tell you, folks, we need to be strategic. We need to be purposeful, and we need to be intentional about it because what God has made his strategy, we need to embrace. We need to embrace. And when we do, like the early church, it'll be one of the most powerful, effective tools of witnessing that we possibly could come up. And I'm going to close with this, and it's a little off topic. One of the great things about when you get saved and the gospel becomes, being a Christian, your primary identity and your race, whatever it is, becomes secondary. Here's the cool thing. Let me flip it over and I'll be done. Is that when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that your culture no longer matters or you lose it. It's just that it becomes secondary. What I love about Faith Baptist Church, one of the things I love, is that when you become a Christian, being a Christian is your first identity, but you still hold on to your second one. Now, small history of missions. One of the biggest mistakes we've made in the last 200 years, and maybe still are doing it, is that when we go to foreign countries to win people the gospel, we try to win them and be Americans. And we try to convert them not only to Jesus, but to Western culture. And can I tell you this? It couldn't be any farther away from what God wants us to do methodology. We should not be going to other countries, Haiti, wherever, Ecuador, Colombia. We cannot go over there and be, the gospel is for everyone, but the Western culture is not. People don't lose their culture, they keep it, but now it's just subordinated to Jesus' culture, right? And at Faith Baptist Church, when you become a Christian, you know, not everyone here should, it's not about keeping your American culture or our westernized culture. If you're from Ghana or you're from Hispanic country, you're from wherever it is, you need to keep your culture. Just make sure that Jesus is the most important part about your identity. But we need to celebrate that. We need to celebrate the fact that you're different and you might wear different clothes. And even at times, you might sing different songs and different beats to those songs and different kinds of music and you eat different kind of food, which is the part I like the best, right? I mean, you, we, what we have to say is that we celebrate the sameness which controls everything, Jesus, and we also celebrate the differentness, right? And so we celebrate those things because that's what the church does where nobody else does. Nobody else does is that we celebrate both. And that's really what God says it means to be the church. That's one of the things it means to be that kind of community. And when we continue to work on that, and with our diversity, we have that kind of unity, but not uniformity, unity. We're not all the same. We're different. We have backgrounds, races, all, language, cult. we're different. But what makes us the same is what keeps us together and how we work through issues that we don't like or agree with. You know why? Because that's what the church is. That's what it means to be the church. And my prayer is that God would give us the grace to do that more. Let's close. Father, thank you for these texts. Wonderful verses. Wonderful truths. Um, Lord, I'm even thankful tonight that as hard as it is sometimes for us to change, we need to. I remember, Lord, you know I read Galatians 2 this week 
where not very long after these events in Acts 10 and 11, Peter had to be called down on the carpet, so to speak, by Paul publicly to his face because he'd gone back to not eating with Gentiles. And, and he had to be reprimanded publicly by Paul. Lord, it's so easy to slip back into old ways and old ways of thinking and doing when we get pressure and opposition from people. We need to practice biblical truth. Help us, Lord, to do that the more because we know what the gospel is even more about tonight and what the fruit of it ought to be. May we practice that, practice that in all of our relationships as a result. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name.